As we begin, I want to kind of go back last Sunday. We finished up verses 6 and 7. This morning, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17. But Paul says in verse 6, as he's talking to the church at Rome, that whom you also were called of Jesus Christ. So we talked about the gospel sets us apart. We are called to Christ through the gospel. In verse 7, he says, to all who are, and the gospel is inclusive. That in the gospel, we find not only a calling from Christ, but we find community. Paul says, all of you, as we'll see this morning, Jews and Gentiles, uh, Greeks, barbarians, we are all the wise and the foolish. We all find community in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse 7, who are beloved of God in Rome. Uh, Again, that in in the gospel, we find that we are cared for. We are cared for. It's been said that we are much more sinful than we could ever want to admit, but we are much more loved than we could ever realize, ever realize how loved we are by our heavenly father. So in the gospel, we find that we are cared for, but I want to just touch this morning, called as saints, called as saints. Paul was writing to a group of people who were just like us. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about what was going on in Rome. I mean, it was a sinful city. It was a city filled with idolatry. It was a city caught up in power. And we'll see that in just a moment. But they were sinners. And now Paul says, you've gone from being a sinner to a saint. A saint. So we've, we've all been changed by the gospel. And that's hopefully your testimony this morning and my testimony this morning, that we have been changed by the gospel. And I share that as we begin because... I mentioned last week how the life of Augustine, who became St. Augustine, and if you know much about theology, you've studied some of his writings. We talked about Martin Luther, how his life was changed by the epistle to the Romans. We talked about John Wesley, how he was listening to the the preface to the book of um, Martin Luther's preface to the, the gospel or the book of Romans. And as he heard that, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit. So we talked about lives that were changed by this great book. But I want you to know this morning that it's not just having this book in your Bible that makes all the difference. It's the way Paul expounds the gospel in the book of Romans. As Pastor Colby read just a few minutes ago, verse 16 and 17, they're the very heart of this book, that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So We talked about all the lives that were changed, but just want to begin this morning by emphasizing the fact that it is the gospel that's presented, the gospel of God's righteousness being available to us by faith that changes us from sinners to saints, okay? So that's kind of a little background from from last week. But uh, as I mentioned last week, Paul was probably in Corinth when he was writing to the church at Rome. He'd never been there, but he wanted desperately to go to Rome. Not to see all the buildings, but as we'll see this morning, he had a spiritual purpose for wanting to go to Rome. As we know, in Paul's day, Rome was the most powerful city in the world. It was a city known for its culture and military power and also for its pagan worship. In the temple, in the Rome, there was a temple there. You can Google it, the Pantheon, which remnants remain today. But in the Pantheon, there was a temple where all the gods were on display. There were gods, the the Romans had tons of gods. And every God, there was a God for every day of the week. There was a God for every month of the year. There was a God for every holiday. 
They had the God of fertility. They had the God of harvest. They had all kinds of gods. So they, they would have been fine if Paul had showed up or the church there in Rome had said, you know, we want to put another God in the temple and his name is Jesus Christ. Oh, sure. The more the merrier, the more the merrier. Come on, put your God here with our gods. But we know the gospel says there's only one God, the living God. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm willing to go to Rome, the most powerful city in the world. I'm not offended by my gospel, the gospel of God. I will place and preach my gospel against your gods any day of the week. It's almost as if Paul is calling them out. And that's what we see this morning in the first chapter, verses 8 through 17. In this powerful city, Paul was not ashamed to declare the power of God for salvation. Let's read together. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read to you. If I'm just, I want to read this over you. Remain standing for prayer, okay? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the righteousness that is made available to us through your son, the righteous one. We thank you for the gospel this morning, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God, I pray this morning that you would help us, Lord, to, Lord, to see the, the true condition of our heart. Lord, as Christians, to see where is our faith today? How do we continually believe the gospel, live out the gospel from faith to faith? Lord, we thank you for the power of the gospel this morning to transform lives. And Lord, thank you for the lives that have been transformed in this place today. Thank you for those who are going to be or yet to be transformed by the power of the preaching of your word, your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. It's interesting in these first 17 verses that Paul uh, has 17 personal pronouns. I, me, my. We looked at some of them last week and we saw a few this morning. But Paul begins this gospel, as we said, with the longest greeting of any of his writings. 
And, and I keep referring to it as a gospel. We don't traditionally call, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. But many have said this is the gospel of Paul. This is where Paul sets forth the gospel in its clearest, most powerful way. So if I refer to the gospel of Paul, again, I'm mistaken, but then again, I'm not. But in this letter, Paul, in the first 17 verses, talks about himself a good bit. And, and you know that one of his methods of ministry, now listen to me, was to, as he communicated the gospel, as he communicated and as he ministered to people, he said this, you follow me as I follow Christ. You, you follow me as I follow Christ. That's a pretty powerful statement in it. Can we say that? Can you say that today to your children? Can you say that to your friends who are kind of on the fringe? Can you say that to your neighbors? But that's what Paul says. You follow me as I follow Christ. So what I want to do in the first few verses here is look at Paul's prayer life. As he prayed for the church at Rome, we, we can learn some powerful truths about what it means to pray and how we should pray. So first, let's look at Paul's prayer for the church at Rome. We're going to notice three aspects of his prayer as, and that should encourage us and hopefully uh, maybe even challenge us. Paul says, verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Notice that his prayer was filled with thankfulness. Notice also that Paul was a Southerner. No doubt about it, right? I thank my God for you all. Who says you all except somebody in the South? I mean, good grief. So Paul was a, a praying man, but he was a praying Southerner. Thanksgiving was a common part of Paul's greetings to all the letters that he wrote, to all his, his epistles. But it, because, see, Thanksgiving was just a natural outgrowth of Paul's communication with God. Do you know that? When Paul began to pray, he just naturally turned to Thanksgiving. He was thankful for the church at Rome. He's thankful for the church at Corinth, at Philippi. You read that in every letter. Paul had a heart, and I believe Paul had a life that was filled with thankfulness. Thankfulness. And in his prayer life, he was faithful to communicate that thankfulness to the Lord. He thanked the Lord for their faith. Look at that, for their reputation. Your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, we know that there was a limited knowledge of the whole world at this time, but everywhere Paul went, obviously the whole Mediterranean world, he could say it honestly, that he'd heard about the church at Rome. I believe that's one of the reasons why he so desperately wanted to go to Rome. But he had heard what God was doing in Rome. I thank God for you. I thank God for your faith. Let me challenge us this morning at Alberta Baptist Church. Wouldn't it be great for people to say that about our church? We had a men's speaker at a breakfast a couple weeks ago, and the first thing he said is one of our African-American pastors in the community. He thanked Alberta Baptist Church for coming to this location and ministering to this community. But, Kobe, I know that encouraged you as it encouraged me, and it should encourage all of our men, that our reputation is that we've come for a purpose. And people outside of our church and in this community are thankful for us. But let's take it a step further, church. Let's live out our faith. Let's impact this community in such a way that Christians in other parts of the city, other parts of the state, other parts of the world are saying, hey, I've heard about your church. I've heard about your church. Man, the young people that come from Alberta Baptist Church, that go to Auburn, that go to Alabama, that go to, what's going on at that church? 
And they have a foundation. They have a reputation. The church has a foundation for building disciples. And our faith is known because it is real. Paul was thankful in his prayer life. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, in everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So this morning, church, let me ask you, are you giving thanks in all things? You know, a a heart of gratitude is such a a gift to have. Do you know it's impossible to worry and be thankful at the same time? You know, you can't do this. It's emotionally impossible. It's impossible to be angry and genuinely thankful at the same time. You just can't do that. See, a thankful heart transforms us. And Paul models that for us here in uh, this prayer. And so Paul says, I thank God for your ministry. I thank God for your ministry, a ministry that Paul had never personally been to. The church at Rome was not his church. Church, let me ask you a question here. Are we kingdom-minded enough to be truly thankful when other churches are growing and making a difference? If we're not, we should be. We should be thankful like Paul that this church down here is prospering. This church here is making a difference. Why? Because like Paul told the church at Philippi, it doesn't matter what their pretense, if the gospel's being preached and lives are being changed, I am genuinely thankful. And to have that attitude, we have to be kingdom-minded. Hey, the church is much more than who we are at Alberta Baptist Church. We are part of this kingdom of God, and we're praying and we're thankful when we hear good things about any church anywhere doing the work of the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm glad you're on board with that. That's where we want to be. We want to be kingdom-minded enough to be thankful when other churches, just like Paul. So this was not Paul's church, but he was thankful. His prayer was filled with thankfulness. Secondly, his prayer demonstrated his faithfulness. Look at verse verse nine. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. Now this morning, we're gonna talk a lot about the gospel, okay? But Paul says here, it's the gospel of his son. Look at verse one. He was set apart for the gospel of God. Now which one is it? Is it the gospel of his son or is it the gospel of God? Yes, (laughs) yes. The gospel of God is the gospel of his son. Because his son is God. We're, we see this all throughout the book of Romans. So Paul says, I'm, I'm, God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit. He is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. What's Paul saying there? I faithfully pray for you. We see in Paul's prayer life, he demonstrated his faithfulness. Paul's saying, I pray for you all the time, unceasingly. As a matter of fact, Paul was the one who said, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Let me ask you, have you ever grasped that concept to pray without ceasing? Do you know what that means? See, it tells us that prayer is more than just an act. It's an attitude. The only way we can pray without ceasing, the only way we can pray unceasingly, as Paul says here, is to have an attitude. I think it goes back to the first point of gratitude. We're continually thanking God. God, thank you. Man, what a beautiful sunshine. God, thank you. Thank you. There's old widow Jones. I thank you, Lord, for her. I pray for her. And just, it's an attitude of prayer as we're going through our daily life. Now, do we have, need to have set aside times where we go in our closet? Do we? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus said that. 
When we pray, we go into a quiet place. We meet with our Father. But Paul says here, in praying without ceasing, and unceasingly, I pray for you. I believe he's saying, you know, when I'm going, when I, whatever I'm doing, you're coming to my mind. And let me ask you, you know, do you know how to worry? Anybody here know how to worry? Okay, yeah. If you know how to worry, you know how to pray unceasingly. Because what you're doing, you're doing just the opposite. When we're worrying, we're dwelling on the negative. We're thinking about how am I going to do, how am I going to do, how, worry, worry, worry. I like Corey Tinboom, Teresa's hero. She says, worry is taking responsibility for today's trouble, tomorrow's trouble today. Taking responsibility for tomorrow's trouble today. But if we know how to worry, we know how to pray. We know how to meditate. So Paul says, I, in his prayer, he is faithful to pray unceasingly. He said this to the church at Philippi, chapter Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for what? Nothing. In the Greek, that means nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in what? Everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. As we pray unceasingly, Paul says, I pray for you faithfully. Day by day, I'm praying for you. Let me, again, like the old preacher said, when you talk about prayer, there's more said than done. How about it? How's your prayer life? Are we praying unceasingly? Do we pray more than we worry? Do we tend to be an anxious person? Or are we, as Peter says, casting all our cares upon him Why? He he cares for us. God genuinely cares for us. So we can cast our cares upon him. Do we pray more than we worry? Let me ask you a very personal question. Do we really pray for other people when we say we will? I'll pray for you. Or I am praying for you. Facebook, la-da-da-da, praying. Do we really Again, let me, again, we all stand convicted, I know, to some degree. But let's be known as a congregation where our faith is being proclaimed, where our prayer life. You know, when, when we are, we're a praying church, people will sense that when they walk into this sanctuary. When they're around your presence. I know people in my ministry of 27 years that, that, who, who prayed. I can tell. I can, there's just something about a praying person. They're different. Paul's prayer life, he was praying faithfully. Do we faithfully pray for others? Let me tell you, you can tell a lot about a person by what they are thankful for and what they pray for. You know that? You can tell a lot about a person by what they are thankful for and what they consistently, faithfully pray for. His prayer was filled with thankfulness and demonstrated his faithfulness. But also, thirdly, look at verse 10. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. What's Paul saying? I want to come, but only if it's God's will. Only if it's God's will. Here we see his prayer revealed his submissiveness. His submissiveness. Paul, you know, there's a lot said about the apostle Paul. You know, they, they say physically he was not very intimidating. He alluded to that in his letters. Probably a small guy, kind of not very big in stature physically or, you know, broad-shouldered. But he was a lion. He would have been what we call today a type A personality. 
I mean, Paul was, he was aggressive, if you will. He was not passive in any way. But yet, and with his strong will, Paul yet had a submissive heart. A submissive heart. If the Lord wills, if at last by the will of God, he had a strong will but a submissive heart. He submitted to the will of God. Yeah, one writer said he was anything but passive. If God closed a door, Paul would give it a good kick first. <laughs> How many of us, that may be what he's talking about, verse 13. Look at that. He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented so far. God just keeps closing that door. I keep banging my head, but, God's, but, God, but he said, ultimately, I'm going to surrender my life to the will of God. I'm going to submit my life to God's will. When we pray, do we pray and ask for God to reveal his will to us? Let me tell you, church, God does not play games with us. God does not delight in hiding his will from us. I wish I knew the will of God. Well, a lot of God's will comes right here through his word. And if we're walking in obedience to God's word, we know God reveals little by little, step by step, as we walk in obedience. But God's will is not some mystery that he delights in hiding. He doesn't play games for us. But here, let me tell you what I've learned over the years is that the beauty is in the process. The beauty is in the process. When we seek to know God's will, man, you know, maybe we got a decision to make. What do we do? We start praying. We hit our knees. We get all everybody to pray for us. God, give me wisdom. But the beauty is in the process. As we seek his will, we find his face. As we seek his hand, we find his face. And that's not just using my anatomy, which I know nothing about, but the fact that as we seek God's to move, as we seek God's will, we find communion and fellowship with God. I believe that's one of the reasons sometimes trials and tribulations come our way. It's just our Father's way of saying, you're too busy. You need to slow down. You need to Psalm 46, 10 it for a while. What's that? Be still and know that I'm God. But Paul was submissive to God's will. If at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. When we seek God, we not only find his will, we find him and fellowship with him. We need to seek his hand, but we must continually seek his face. So we, we learn from Paul's prayer life, a challenge, I think, for each of us today. The second thing we see in verse 11 through 15, Paul's desire to visit the church at Rome. He says, for I long to see you, and that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, and that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while amongst you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. First thing he does here in 11 through 13, he shares us why he wants to come, his purpose for the visit. Why does he want to come? He wants to come to help establish them in their faith and to be encouraged, and to be encouraged. He wanted to come to establish and to encourage. Paul's saying that I want to come and give you, verse 11, some spiritual gift. Paul had a spiritual gift that he wanted to give to the church at Rome. You know, you say, what are you talking about? 
Is he talking about like a spiritual gift, like the gift of wisdom or the gift of mercy or the gift of teaching? No. Who gives those gifts? God, the Spirit. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that God's the one who gives us gifts of the Spirit. So was Paul going to come and give them some gift? No, he wasn't capable of doing that. But what Paul is doing, listen to me, church, Paul wanted to come to be a spiritual blessing. He's using the term a spiritual gift to compare with a material gift. Now, he took up an offering for the church in Jerusalem from the other churches and brought a gift to them. That would be a material gift. But Paul says, I want to come to Rome, and I want to give you a spiritual gift. Think about that. I want to give a spiritual gift. And he goes on to describe that gift in terms of encouragement. That is, verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to encourage you spiritually. Let me tell you something. This is beautiful to me. As we live in community, as we find community, know God, find community. This is what life in the community is like. It's giving and receiving. Let me ask you, what's your attitude when you come to church? What's your attitude when you come to church? Is it all about me? Music's too loud, music's not enough, didn't sing my songs, it's too hot, it's too cold. We hear that all the time, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with that. We love you. I want you to know that we love you. But when we come to church, is it all about what I receive or do I come with an attitude, what can I give? That's what Paul says. I want to be encouraged by your faith and I want to encourage you with my faith. Isn't that beautiful? You know, this could carry on to our house, to our office. You know, I want to be a blessing wherever I go. I want to give you a spiritual gift. That was Paul's desire for coming to Rome. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, let us consider, let us think how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Let's give it some thought. Next Sunday when we come or the day before you leave, think, how can I be a blessing to someone else? Hey, this was a blessing to me. This, you know, you're, you're saying hello. You're reaching out to me. That was a blessing to me. You're encouraging word. Giving and receiving. Giving and receiving. That's what life is like in the community. So Paul says, I want to do this. And he had a strong desire. Look at verse 13. And this is interesting. I do not want you to be unaware have you ever heard Paul say that before? I do not want you to be unaware. That's kind of like Paul's phrase for saying, listen up, wake up. I have to do that occasionally for myself. Listen up. I do not want you to be unaware. Paul says that when he talks about the second coming of Christ. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. Paul says that when he talks about the giving of spiritual gifts. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. So anytime you see Paul say that, he's saying, listen up, this is important. And in this passage, it simply just emphasizes the desire that Paul had, the intensity of his desire to come to Rome. I want to come to Rome. Why? So that I can give and receive from you, of my fellow believers. Listen up. Do not be unaware. He's telling us, verse 13, he's tried his best to come so that he could be a part of their spiritual growth. And the fruit, he says here, so that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as, a, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Again, the fruit here can, can refer to, 
to encouragement. You know, we, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. When we're as believers, we have the fruit of the Spirit in us. You know, he said, I want to encourage you. But you can't help but think, you know, Paul says, I want to come to Rome, and I want to preach there, and I want to see people come to know Christ. That was his heart. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, he tells them that that's what happens. In Philippians, if you read back in chapter 1, he says now that the gospel is being made known. As Paul, in Philippians, he's in Rome, but he's a what? A prisoner. He's under house arrest. So he's got this Roman guard chained to him 24-7. But he says that now in Rome, the gospel is being made known through the whole praetorian guard. The whole palace guard has heard about Jesus because I'm in chains. So he said, the gospel is not chained. So Paul says, I want to come to Rome so that I can encourage you. I can give you a spiritual gift, but I want to come so that I can bear fruit to encourage you spiritually, see spiritual fruit in your life, but also so that the gospel can be spread so that more people can come to know Christ. We need to ask ourselves, what would I like to see happening in my church? Think about that. What would I like to see happening in my church? Would I like to see people encouraged spiritually? Am I going to be a part of that? Would I like to see people coming to know Christ? Am I going to be a part of that? That was Paul's heart as he ministered to the church at Rome from a distance. What am I doing to make those things happen in my church? So that was his purpose for coming, his motivation for coming. Verse 14 and 15, he says two things, and this really is what jumped out at me. He says, I'm under obligation and I'm eager. I'm under obligation, verse 14, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager. I'm eager. You know, Paul's obligation, what does that mean? How was Paul obligated to the Greeks and the non-Greeks? It's interesting, that word barbarians. You know, you know the actual word is bar, 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 bar. It's, it's an onomatopoeia. The word sounds like you know, it's, it's written. It me, its meaning is like it's written, the, the sounding of the word. Bar, bar, bar was a non-Greek. They were, you know, they were just considered to be unintelligent. He said, so I'm under obligation to the Greeks who are so smart and to the bar, 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 the barbarians. People don't know, know anything. To the wise and to the foolish. Why was Paul under obligation? I think of two things. Number one, when Paul was called, you see this in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. When he shares his testimony, he says specifically that God set me apart for a ministry to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Paul knew that there were Gentiles in Rome as well as Jews. And Paul felt obligated, I believe, to every Gentile who walked the face of the earth. He felt obligated because that was his purpose. He had been called to be a minister to the Gentiles. You know, again, what do we take? What's my purpose? Who has God placed in my life to minister right now? You know, I stand before 25 second graders every day. Is that what God's called me to do? I go to an office and I have a desk by 10 or 12 other people. Is this where God's called me to be? Is this my ministry? You know, I go and I drive in a neighborhood and I see my neighbors out in the yard, their kids playing. Is this what God's called, who God's called me to minister to? I feel obligated because God has placed me in this place at this time for this purpose. I think that's a part of God's, Paul's feeling of an obligation because he was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. 
Maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe Paul just felt obligated because he was obligated by grace. Paul had experienced God's grace. And once you experience God's grace, you naturally realize, I need to share it. I need to share it. The love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's like John Wesley, when he's 84 years old, he wrote in his diary, a terrible sin has overtaken my soul. He said, I slept to 530 this morning. He said, I'm asleep and there's a world perishing all around me. There was a man who felt obligated to communicate the gospel. Now we know that the power, the gospel is a power of God for salvation. It's God's harvest, but yet are we obligated? Do we feel that sense? You know, if we had the cure for cancer, if we had the cure for disease, we would be obligated to share that with someone who is struggling with it. Would we not? Paul had the answer to how to be righteous before God, how a sinful man could be righteous in the eyes of God. He felt obligated to share that. But not only was he obligated, he was eager, eager. On my part, I am eager. I'm ready to go to Rome. Paul had no idea what was going to happen in Rome. At the end of Acts, we see that Paul is sent to Rome because he appeals to Caesar. And so he goes to Rome as a prisoner. And eventually, Paul will be executed in Rome. But what's his attitude? I'm ready. Man, put me in, coach. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready to go to Rome. I don't care how big that pantheon is. I don't care how powerful Caesar is. I don't care how many gods they got. Let me come and preach the power of God in Rome. I'm ready. I'm ready. Paul would say in 2 Timothy, when he came to the end of his life, he says again, I'm ready. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. When I think about Paul, I think about a man, a man who's ready to live and ready to die. A man who's ready to live. Here's what he told the church at Philippi. For me to live is what? Christ. Or who? For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. What a great way to live our life. For me to live is Christ. I'm ready to go to Rome. I'm ready to go to the university. I'm ready to go wherever God sends me to the Middle East. I'm ready to go. But yet I'm ready to die. My days are in his hand. Paul says, I am ready. Ready to live. Ready to die. Paul's desire to go to Rome was based on his desire to be used by God to make a difference. University students, let me ask you, how about you? Are you ready? Do you feel a sense of obligation? Do you have a desire to be used by God? Alberta church members, how about us? Are we ready? Ready to live? Ready to die? Paul had a desire to go to Rome, and he wasn't to see the beautiful buildings. It was to be used by God. Thirdly, and we'll be done, Paul's passion for the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's passion for the gospel is rooted in the fact that he knew, first of all, the gospel means what? Good news. Good news. Good news. Good news good because of the nature of the message. We are communicating life. It's good because of the need of man. Men need life. 
And it's good because it is a non-negotiable mandate from God. I stole that from some preacher. I can't remember. It just came to mind. I like the ends there. But it's good news. If it's good news, why are we so ashamed to share it? Why are we so embarrassed? Church, we need to be reminded what the gospel is. It's what? Good news. It's not like we're going out to try to put somebody in handcuffs or beat them over the head. Hey, we've got a found life. My life has been changed. I have meaning and purpose because I've come to know Christ. It's good news. Paul says it's good news, the gospel. We need to be reminded. It's good news, two reasons. Number one, it's powerful. It is. It doesn't say it has the power of God. It doesn't say it brings the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. There's no other way. God's, the gospel of God has the power to transform our life. That's what Tim Keller says. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal, cognitive form. It lifts people up. It transforms and changes things. When the gospel is preached and explained, its power is released. See, the gospel is powerful enough to reconcile the lost, rebellious humanity to a holy God. Let me ask you this morning, has your life been transformed by the power of the gospel? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's the power of the gospel to be transformed. Why is the gospel so powerful? First of all, it's the gospel of God. It's good news. And secondly, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It's the power of God and the righteousness of God. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is so powerful because as we read it, as we hear it preached, we begin to understand what Martin Luther understood, that as he hated the righteousness of God. See, I got a feeling Luther grew up like some of us, heard a lot about hell, you know, hellfire and brimstone is what we used to call it. And we heard about the wrath of God, the punishment of God. And, you know, maybe we heard about the holiness and the character of God. Hopefully we did. But a lot of us, as kids grew up with this great, me, myself included, this fear of going to hell. Fear of going to hell. And we heard about the wrath of God, which is real, which is real. That's what Paul says. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 9, he says, much more than having now been justified by faith, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is real. The righteousness of God is real. That's why Martin Luther hated God, because there was this righteous standard he knew he could not live up to. But the book of Romans, the gospel that was expounded in the book of Romans changed his life because he began to realize that the righteousness that Paul talks about here in verse 17 is the righteousness that God gives to Joseph as a gift. It's the righteousness that God gives to Zach as a gift. It's the righteousness of God that God gives to Jennifer as a gift. And he was blown away. You mean I can be righteous with God by faith? Yes. Yes. That's powerful. It's life changing to know that I can have a right relationship with God by believing the gospel. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It is a gift to us. 
The good news of the gospel is that God offers us that righteousness through Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. Man. Second, look at this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Don't take my word for it. God's word says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It wasn't so hot and I had a coat on. I'd take my coat off and give it to somebody. Say, you know, this is what God did. He took my sin and he gives me his coat, his righteousness. I'm changed. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. The righteousness of God. How can this happen to me? The righteous, the gospel is received by faith. Verse 17. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Faith. And it's a life, as he says here in the first part, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? From faith to faith. Paul's saying you don't begin by faith and then turn to works. You know, you're not righteous before God when you believe the gospel and then you just, he leaves you on your own to do the best you can to work. No, the whole, the whole Christian life is lived from faith to faith. I'm saved by the gospel and I live by the gospel. What does that mean? The gospel tells me that Jesus loves me, that he died for me. The gospel enables me to love the unlovely. The gospel tells me that Jesus forgave me my sin. When I live out the gospel, I forgive others because I've been forgiven. The gospel tells me that I've been accepted in Christ just as I am. And so I need, because of the gospel, accept others just as they are. So we see this gospel is a life changer. Not just, you know, I think back to Bryant Hall, room 301, 1975, as a freshman at Alabama, when I placed my trust in Christ and I believed the gospel. See, that was just the beginning. From faith to faith, the righteous shall live by faith, by faith. We live believing that we've been saved. We live believing that the gospel impacts every area of our life. So let me ask you this morning. Are you, are you ready? Are you eager? Have you trusted in the gospel of Christ? Do you know this morning that you have a righteousness that is not your own, but it's the righteousness of Christ that's unsurpassed, and it is yours by faith? Paul says, I'm ready, ready to live and ready to die. I keep this thing in my Bible. It's from uh, John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It's a true story of two soldiers who were on Iwo Jima, an island. They were both hunkered down in a foxhole, and they were trying to find out where the gunfire was coming from. And a, a, a guy from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, last name was Kelly, he reached up out of the foxhole to see where the gunfire was coming from, and he took a bullet into his throat. William Hoops was a medic who was right there beside Kelly, and he began to work on his friend. And these are his words. He said, I took my forceps and reached into his neck to grasp the artery to pinch it off. His blood was spurting. He had no speech, but his eyes were on me. He knew I was trying to save his life. I tried everything in the world. I couldn't do it. I tried. The blood was so slippery. I couldn't get the artery. I was trying so hard. All the while, he just looked at me. 
He looked directly into my face. The last thing he did as the blood spurts became less and less was to pat me on the arm as if to say, that's all right. You tried. And then he died. That story's had such impact on me because I want to be both those guys. I want to be like Kelly. When my time comes, I can look at my family surrounding me and say, I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready. But I want to be like hoops too. Giving it all I've got in the power of the spirit, living for Christ. Why? Because the gospel is our only hope. It's the power of God revealed to us. It's the righteousness of God that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. What an amazing message. What a life-changing message. I pray this morning that your life has been changed by the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.